morning. God, we, we, we just give you all the praise and glory in our lives. Father, we thank you that you're a God that hears, that you're a God that redeems. Father, I want to pray for anybody who's watching this morning on this live stream, anybody who's overcome with despair or fear. Father, we come against it right now in the name of Jesus. Would you just reach your hands out to the heavens right now and cry out to God? Father, fill them with your peace, Lord. Fill them with your love. Cover their fears, Lord. Your word said, perfect love casts out fear. So, Father, fill them with your love that the fear would be gone. Father, that during these times they would trust you and you alone. Thank you. We praise you this morning in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. 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 You can be seated. You can get off the stage. Man, that was good worship. Really good. Well, in these few moments that we have as I'm setting up here, a couple things. First, if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, uh, do me a favor and would you please uh, like the video, uh, share the video, and then also make a, make a quick comment and people say, oh, I don't like to do that stuff. It, the, it helps the algorithm. So what it does is that it makes the video get pushed out and uh, give you an opportunity for sharing the gospel by merely clicking the button. So it's a good thing to do that. Also, uh, for those of you that didn't hear at the beginning, and I'm reiterating it again, listen very closely. Next week, starting next week, uh, we're doing an, uh, a drive-in uh, outdoor service where you can either sit in your car, you can stand in the parking lot, sit in the parking lot. That's going to be at 9 o'clock. We're done with the 8, 8.30. It's going to be at 9 o'clock. And uh, the online service is going to be at 11 o'clock. That's what it's going to be. Uh, and so if you're watching right now, next week when you come and you're going to be there at 10 o'clock, you're going to be like, hey, where's the online? Where's the streaming? It's because it's going to 11 o'clock. So don't forget that for next week. Um, uh, our hope is that we'll be back in person soon. People say, when will we be back in person? I don't know. We're, we're adjusting daily. So today I might say we're not doing it. This afternoon I might say we're doing it. We're trying to watch everything with everything. It's, it's, it's not an easy decision. So we'll get there eventually. It'll be fine. Uh, if you are looking for in-person service, though, for a 45-degree raining service, it was fire this morning. Uh, outdoors. <laughs> uh, people braved the cold to come out and, uh, man, we had a good crowd. So, uh, come out. It'd be great to have you. All right. So let's pray with this message. Father God, we love you. We praise you. We glorify you today in the mighty name of Jesus. God, we thank you for your word. We think that it's alive, that it's active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. God, we pray today, Lord, you use this word to, ch- use this word to change us, challenge us, and to convict us. Father, we pray that we wouldn't leave here the same way that we came. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 18, verses 19 through 33 this morning. You can follow along with us. New King James Version, same version Jesus used. Then Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news of another day. But today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. 
And Joab said to the Cushite, <clears throat> go and tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahamaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me run. Excuse me. Please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news already? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahamaz ran by the way of the plain and out ran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted up his eyes, lifted his eyes and looked. And there was a man running alone. And the watchman cried out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there's news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there's another man running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahamaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. So Ahamaz called out and said to the king, all is well. And then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the Lord, my Lord, the king. The king said, is the young man Absalom safe? Ahamaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw great tumult. But I did not know what it was about. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came. The Cushite said, there is good news, my lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is, it the, young man, is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise against you do to, against you to do harm be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. What's going on in this story? Well, what's going on in this story is that uh, if you've been following along with us, David is the rightful king of Israel. And then he's got his son, Absalom. And what Absalom has done is that Absalom has taken over the kingdom of Israel. And so he's pushed his father out. And, and there was this war and there was this fight. And we talked about it last week where Absalom had died. And Absalom deserved to die because of what he did to the kingdom, uh, even though he didn't die in the right place uh, or in the, in the right way. And so what we're seeing here is the news that's being delivered to King David about the outcome of his, uh, outcome of his son. And David is sad because his son is dead. And <clears throat> what this is, is that there, if you go back to all the way back with the story of David and Bathsheba, this is the fulfillment of it where uh, because of David's sin, this is the outpouring of his sin is that his, his house is going to be in chaos. His son is going to die. And so at the end of this, what we see when David gets the news delivered to him is that his heart is such is that even though his son deserved to die, even though Absalom had done wrong, David's heart is a heart that says, you know what? I wish that I would have died instead of my son, because even though his son was bad, even though his son had committed uh, uh, wrongfully, David's heart was one that said, you know what? I want my son to live. I wish that I had died instead. Now, most people enjoy a good revenge movie. Um, we, uh, we love a story of someone getting what they deserve. And, and uh, some of you old school people remember church people never used to watch movies. I think you need to be careful of what you watch. Uh, but some of you have probably seen some of these movies before. The movie uh, Mean Girls. Some of you have seen that movie before. Uh, the movie uh, John Wick, which is probably the most... <laughs> 
yeah, it's a bad movie. Uh, lots, uh, lots of revenge in that. One of the ones I like is that movie, The Equalizer, with uh, Denzel Washington. That's a, that's a really good revenge movie. Get Carter, Death Wish. That's kind of an old school revenge movie. Uh, in in most movies with a villain, we love the payoff of them getting what they deserve. And this is this is why we love movies because they're little little stories that encapsulate our hearts that that make us feel a certain kind of way. So when you watch a revenge movie, you get really excited about watching the villain getting what they deserve. It's satisfying. Uh, we, we love to see evil get punished because it makes us feel better about ourselves. When you see somebody doing something horrible in a movie, internally, without even realizing it, you tell yourself, at least I'm not like that person. At least I haven't done that bad. And so when they get destroyed, you're like, yes, I'm glad that evil is getting punished because justice has been served. Uh, so it makes us feel better. In, in, in our minds, what we believe is that the guilty must pay for the wrong that they have done. Uh, these are why these movies do so well is because even people that aren't Christians believe that the guilty should be punished. Even people that, that don't believe in Christ believe that crime uh, should should be met with punishment. Uh, and, and so uh, we love these types of movies because it gives us that thought in our hearts that evil is being destroyed. Now, on the other hand, uh, we enjoy the sacrificial hero stories. We love those as well. Uh, one of my wife and I's favorite movies is Armageddon with Bruce Willis. Uh, because Bruce Willis is Harry Stamper in this movie. And he's the guy that sacrifices his own life to save the whole entire world. Uh, I mean, what, what gets better than that, right? I mean, it's it's a good story. Uh, uh, I'm not a Star Trek guy, but Spock in Star, Te- Star Trek II Wrath of Khan dies for everybody else. Tony Stark in Endgame Avengers, uh, Obi-Wan in, in uh, Star Wars. These are, these are stories where someone is able to sacrifice themselves for others, and it touches the heartstrings. Uh, we love these movies as well. Uh, me and my wife call them Sunday movies because you always feel better after you're watching them because someone sacrifices themselves for the good of other people. Now, behind these hero stories is this idea of we cannot save ourselves and uh, that we need the help of others. So those, those stories really touch on our heartstrings because we love that when somebody sacrifices for somebody else, when they die for somebody else to help others. What's interesting is we pride ourselves on self-sufficiency, but in the end, we know it's a lie. Uh, we, you, you, you watching this uh, sermon today, you might pride yourself on self-sufficiency, but you are living on the backs of everybody else that has invented things before you. Uh, this screen that you're watching through, the food that you buy, the car that you drive, the things that you buy, all of that is connected to people that came long before you that did things. None of us are self-made at all. But as much as that is, we want to pride ourselves on self-sufficiency, but we need doctors and fire and police and friends and all these other things in our lives. We need people. Now, there's a few stories out there where revenge happens and the hero dies. And and these movies leave us really wanting. (laughs) At the end, you see a hero that dies that wasn't supposed to die. And you just kind of walk out of the theater like, what was that all about? The hero died. But there's not a lot of stories where the hero dies for the villain. There's not a lot of movies that, that you can think of where the hero of the story at the end of the story dies so that the villain can live. It's a pretty exceptional story. 
because there's no revenge upon the villain. The villain's able to live and the hero says, do you know what? I'm going to die so you can live. And in today's story, we see Absalom is dead and the news gets to his father, David. And, and in this story, remember this, David is not Jesus. David is not God. But we see in this story a, 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 a preview of the coming gospel in that David, as a Christ figure, wants to take the place of his son, Absalom. Absalom is the sinner. Absalom is the one that deserves death. Absalom is the one that should have died. And David stands and he cries out and he says, if only I could take his place. If only I could take his punishment. That way my son could live. That's the vision of the gospel, except the gospel wasn't through David. It was through Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ came and wanted, didn't just want, but actually took our place when we deserved death, when we deserved punishment, Jesus came and took our place. It's the heart of David in action. Jesus didn't just say he wished that he could die for us. He actually came and died for us. Verse 33 says, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Absalom was David's son who had stole his kingdom from him. And, and, and Absalom was a rebellious, angry, thieving, deceitful man. All of these negative emotions was Absalom wrapped up in those, uh, in the, in the actions that he took. And last week we talked about his death and we talked about the righteous penalty of it and that he deserved death. It was unrighteous the way in which it was uh, executed, but it was correct in the sense that Absalom deserved to die. I mean, think about it. Absalom was a guy who was willing to kill his own father so he could rule his own kingdom and not be under the rule of his father. He wanted to kill the king so that he could be the king no matter what the cost. Does it sound familiar? Absalom is the villain of this story. David is the hero. But the hero, David, wants to die for the villain, Absalom. The hero, David, is willing to take the place of the villain, Absalom, when he is the hero. This is the story of our faith. We are the villain. We are Absalom. We wanted our own way. We wanted to rule ourselves. We didn't want a king to rule us. So we took whatever steps we needed to take to ensure our kingdom reign. And we killed the king so that we could rule. And the cry of Jesus came to us and saved us. But instead of, if only I had died for you, he came and he died for us. It wasn't just lip service. Jesus actually came and died for us. We deserved death. You deserve death. And the hero came and died in our place when we were the villain. This is the greatest sacrifice of anyone for anyone ever. Now I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to teach you a, a, a very uh, theological term today. And I want you to internalize this term. It's, it's very central, uh, not very central. It is central, central. It is the center of what we believe as, as Christians. It's a PSA, if you will. It's a public service an, an, an announcement. It's a great way to remember it. PSA. And the term is this. Penal substitutionary atonement. PSA, penal substitutionary atonement. What does it mean? Penal, 
penalty, penalty for sin, substitutionary, Christ took our place, atonement to pay the penalty for our sins. That's what the penal substitutionary atonement means. It means that someone had to come for us to pay for our sins. To understand this is to understand the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the bedrock truth of the entire Christian experience. To reject this truth is to reject Christ. To reject this truth is to not be a Christian. You have to understand this. You have to internalize it. You have to believe it and you have to live it out. If you do not, you are not a Christian. You have to understand this. You, you have to understand the penal substitutionary atonement. We're going to get into it this morning. I want you to roll with me because here's, here's why it's so important. If you understand and internalize this doctrine, it will change your life. And if you're watching this right now and you find that you lack purpose and joy, direction, peace, identity, passion, love, a whole host of things, it may be because you have not adequately appropriated and internalized this vital truth. Yeah. Romans 5, 7 says this, for scarcely a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the gospel. This is salvation. We were sinners and we needed a savior and Jesus came. I so desperately want you, if you're watching this, please don't, don't go away. I want you to watch this until the end because you've got to understand this truth. All of my sermon notes are online. After, after this sermon, you can go to faithandvictory.com. You can watch and we'll follow with the, the notes. This is so central to who we are as Christians that you have to know this. You have to be able to articulate it. You have to be able to explain it to other people. And so you're going to have to watch this message numerous times. You're going to have to go over it with notes so that you can explain to other people what the penal substitutionary atonement means and why it's so important to our Christian faith. Picture this, and this is to understand it. And it's all over the news, so I'm going to use it. The officer that killed George Floyd, he's guilty, not yet in a court of law, but it's clear that he killed George Floyd. But you go and take his place and take the punishment of his sin so that he can go free. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Someone who's 100% guilty and someone that's 100% not taking the place of somebody so that the guilty can walk free and someone else takes the punishment for what somebody else has done wrong. All the benefits... Emotional, spiritual, tangible flow from this truth. As Christians, we get so many benefits of being Christians, but they all flow from this truth. The PSA, the penal substitutionary atonement. And people say, well, why does it have to be that way? Why, why does someone have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Why does Christianity have to be such a bloody endeavor? No other religion requires this. And it's true. And it's what makes Christianity so exceptional and that we're not like any other religion out there. Christianity is a bloody sacrificial belief. 
To believe in Christ and to be a Christian is to believe in blood, not believe in it in the sense of like, I put my faith in blood, but it's to understand blood and the belief in blood is a sacrifice. See, last week we talked about every man being made in the image of God. And that's from the book of Genesis. The, the, the truth of so much that's going on right now is found in the foundations of our faith. The, the, the foundations of racism are found in the rejection of all men are created in the image of God. But all the other ancillary stuff that happens where the world starts to go sideways is the rejection of the blood sacrifice that was found in Genesis. Adam and Eve sinned, the original sin. The only way that their sin got covered is God killed an animal, sacrificed blood, covered their sin with the, with the skins of an animal. These are the bedrock truths of who we are and why the world loses its ever-loving mind is because they reject the basic truths of what God's word says. Blood is all through the Bible, friend. Go read through the Pentateuch. Pentateuch's first five books of the Bible. Blood's everywhere. Covering for the Passover, blood. Uh, Exodus 12, blood. God made a covenant with Israel in blood. Covenant with Abraham in blood. Blood is all through the Old Testament. And then so you can't unhitch your faith from the Old Testament because you have to understand Old Testament to understand blood. Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And people say, why blood? And, and, and you know what? God doesn't make it abundantly clear why he chose blood sacrifice as the means uh, of, of covering for sin. But this is what I, what I believe is that I believe that blood is life and that blood is costly. I think if you were living in Old Testament times and, and you would sin and then you would watch a, a, a sheep or a goat or an animal be cut open wide and their blood spilled on the ground screaming in pain and, 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 and someone looks at you and goes, hey man, you know that animal's dying because of what you did. You might take it a little bit more seriously. If you were standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified for your sin and his blood was spilled out and you heard his screams and his moans as his hands and feet were being crucified and someone was standing there and looked at you in the eyes and said, hey man, that guy's dying for what you did. You might take it a little bit more seriously. You, you, you wouldn't sing these songs about blood and, and not think about the sacrifice of what it took. See, here's part of the story you've got to understand is that God is holy God is not a man. He's not a creation. He is creation. God always was. He always will. He always will be. And people say, where did God come from? That's why he gets the name tag of God is because he always has been. And so because he is, he creates the rules and he can set whatever standards that he wants. He can make things any way that he wants, but he is holy. He is holy. Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, what does holy mean? Holy means different. Holy means distinct. It means different from everything that is common. We've said this before. The opposite of holy is not unholy. The opposite of holy is common. You treat it as a common thing. See, because God is different and God is distinct and God is not like us, that's what makes him holy. It's because he's set apart from us. We are, we are made in the image of God, but we are not God. We are, we are like him, but we are not him. He is holy. We are not. Holiness is his nature. He is holy because he is not us. 
That's what makes him holy is the fact that he is not us. First Peter 1 15 and 16, it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. To make this distinction between us as God, God will always be holy because he will always not be me. I will always not be holy because I am not like him. Now, Ethan talked about on Wednesday, which is a great setup, Christ inside of us, the hope of glory makes us holy. But even though Christ inside of me makes me holy, I'm never holy enough to be God because I am not God. It's like with our kids, like my, I will always be my kid's parent. Nothing will ever change that. My mom will always be my mom. My dad will always be my dad. We may age, whatever, but that is always the role. There's nothing that I can do to ever become my parent's parent because it's just not possible. And so we can never become God. We can never become him because he is God. And so he will always be holy. Now, part of that is, is that God has wrath. Now, God's wrath is not like this jilted lover wrath, because when, when I say wrath and we talk about wrath, people think about like thin line between love and hate kind of wrath. And that's not God's wrath. God, God is not an upset lover that's going to key your car. Like that's, that's not the type of wrath that we're talking about. God's wrath is a loving response to sin. It's a loving response to sin. The Bible says in Psalm 711 that God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every single day. See, God's wrath is an answer to sin. God is holy and there's sin. And so sin must be eradicated. And the only way that sin can be eradicated is through the wrath of God. God's wrath comes in like a fiery judgment and cleans out all sin. And, and, and people misinterpret it and we think that wrath is God's anger, but it's a loving, wrathful anger. And people say, well, how is that possible? It's because God is holy and you are not. And because it's the na- God's nature and character is love, everything he does flows from love. And so his wrath is his love. His anger is his love. Because when it acts out, it's acting in love for your benefit. For your benefit to be in relationship with him. God's wrath is different than human anger. It's holy because he is holy. It is righteous because he makes the rules. It's beautiful in the sense that it's against a egregious nature of sin that needs to be punished. Remember when we talked about the movies, we started this out, I'm setting you up. We talked about in the movies earlier, how you love a revenge movie, because even people that aren't Christians love revenge movies because we're hardwired to believe that the guilty deserve to be punished. And that evil must be eradicated. That evil must be destroyed. And so God comes in and says, I'm going to use my wrath and my anger to destroy evil. And we say, well, I don't want to believe in a God like that. I don't want to serve a God like that. When you yourself desire evil and and sin to be destroyed. And God's wrath is the means by which he destroys sin. The nature of wrath is that it must be. Come upon the wrongdoer. No one escapes. There's never a moment where God overlooks sin and says, you know what? I'm not going to deal with that sin. Either right now in this life or in the life to come, all sin will be dealt with by God. His wrath demands it. His word declares it. And I will tell you this morning, this is such an important distinction 
please stick with me. This is an important distinction for you to understand the penal substitutionary atonement. You must understand that there must be penalty for sin. Penal. If you don't understand the need for punishment for sin, you do not understand the gospel. People say God is love and he is love. He is 100% love. All love flows from God. But you have to understand the nature of sin and that sin must be punished. It can't just be loved away. It has to, it has to be punished. That's how it goes away is through punishment. And if you don't understand the punishment of sin, you don't understand the gospel. It's not merely just love. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's why you can't understand, appreciate, or gain the gospel without understanding wrath. This is why people say, well, I want to go spread the love of God without spreading the understanding of the wrath of God. How can you appreciate his love unless you appreciate his wrath? The, the, the two are, are together, but, but how can you understand freedom? How can you understand love until you understood what, what your sins deserve, which was the punishment and wrath of God? Yes. See, to the unsaved mind or the lukewarm heart, wrath seems evil. It seems like our God is some pagan deity that must be appeased or he's angry. But it's not the case. God is not angry. God is love. His wrath is understood as anger only as a response to sin, which must be dealt with. He loves us enough to punish and destroy sin. He loves us enough. He says, son, daughter, I want to take this sin away from you and my wrath will remove it. He wants us to live for eternity with him where we can spend eternity in heaven without having to deal with sin. We'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Romans 2, 5 says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's judgment is righteous. People say, oh, well, the judgment of God scares me. It shouldn't scare you. Sin must be dealt with. It must be paid for. It must be atoned for. Atonement, it must be paid for. Nahum 1.6 says, who can stand before his indignation and who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the, the rocks are thrown down by him. I mean, you, you would agree with me this morning that there is sin. There's sin all around us. You see it. You see it in your own life and the, the, the community that you live in. There's sin everywhere. And the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all miss the mark. There's none of us that live sin, sinless. There's none of us that are holy. Isaiah 53.6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, just like Absalom. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Ecclesiastes 7.20 said, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and not sin. There is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And because we have all sinned, we are all bad, and we all deserve the punishment and wrath of God. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And the sin in our lives deserves the wrath and the punishment of God. We cannot save ourselves. We are the villain of our own story. 
We are the Absalom. We are the the ones that rejected our fathers and rejected our king that wanted him to die so we could rule our own lives and live the way that we had intended apart from any laws, apart from any direction. We are the heart of Absalom. We are the villains of our own story. We're unable to change on our own. The Bible says in Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. See, when we try to fix our relationship with God, when we try to forgive our own sins, when we try to earn God's favor, we fail because we cannot, because we are too sinful to do so. The Bible makes it clear that there must be payment There must be atonement. The wrath must be satisfied. Friend, God has laws of right and wrong. Of the action and of the heart. None of us can keep them. This is one of the greatest parts of looking in the Old Testament. Is we see all of these laws that we're unable to keep. Because even the laws of action are superseded by the laws of the heart. Even in the Ten Commandments, we, we had laws of the heart. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's, a, that's of the heart. The, the, the sin of envy, the sin of jealousness, the sin of anger. Those are all sins of the heart. And if you would be honest, I know that you, just like me this week, I've felt emotions in my heart. I may not have acted on them. I may not have had my, had my hand or my body go to sin this week. But my heart did. My mind did. Even for a moment, those sins of the mind and heart stay within us. The Bible says in Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. As David cried out, about his wayward son. And he looked at his son who had rejected him and hated him and go to went against him. The heart of David said to his son, son, I wish I could have died instead of you. I wish you could have lived because I love you so much that even when you're wrong and even when you went against me and even when you sinned against me, I was willing to die for you so you could live. And that's what Jesus came to do for you and I. But he didn't just say it. He didn't just say, oh, I wish I could have died. He did die. He died the punishment and the penalty for our sins. And now we live because of what he did. It's the story of the gospel. He took our place. We deserved death like Absalom. We deserve to be on the cross for our blood to pay for our sin. But Jesus stepped in and took our place. The substitute, the substitutionary, the penalty of our sin, the substitution of our payment for Jesus was atoned by him. If we were honest, our hearts are to steal our father's kingdom. Our hearts are to kill others. Our hearts are to live for ourselves. Our hearts are to reject God's ways. But Jesus, he was holy. He was without blemish. And we're not. There's there's no way we could have atoned for ourselves. Because we're not holy, man. We're not good enough. We can't do enough righteous actions to save ourselves. And so now we have salvation through Jesus Christ. 
John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Do you see the distinction in the word? This is why we say, I wish that John 3.36 would have been the the end zone verse instead of John 3.16, because John 3.16 doesn't talk about wrath. It doesn't talk about punishment. The only reason why we can be excited about God's love is because we've escaped his wrath. We've escaped his punishment. We've escaped our just reward for our just actions. Our reward for sin was death. And Jesus steps in and says, I want to save you. I want to take your place. Someone wants to beat you up. I want to take the beating. Someone else wants to kill you. I want to take the killing. So you you have a penalty. I'm going to pay it. If you are not a Christian listening to this right now, God's fiery wrath is resting upon you. You are dead in your sin. And this this is the foundations of what it means to be a Christian. It is so important that you internalize this, that you know this, that you can explain this to other people. When people say, well, why should I be a Christian? I, I I have a happy life. My bills are paid. I'm a good person. You're not a good person. You're a sinner in need of a savior. I don't care whether you're faithful to your wife, you pay your bills, that you say you don't have any anger in your heart. You're still not good enough. You need a savior to save you from the penalty of the sin that you were born into. Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us, saved us, paid for us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ is our advocate before the Father for us. Romans 3.26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, there's a, there's a scripture in Hebrews chapter nine. I want to share this scripture with you. In Hebrews chapter nine, it's verses, I think it's in 15. Let me see here real quick. Apologize. 11 through 15. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 15, it says, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and of calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by the means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Understanding that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, the penal substitutionary atonement. Now, what should this produce in us? And I will tell you, friend, if you understand this truth, if you internalize it, if you believe it, if you live it out, it should produce brokenness over our sin. 
The reality that our sin is an offense towards God. That it's a stench in his nostrils. There's too many people that claim to be Christians that don't care about sin. They, they, They treat it as an okay thing that whatever sort of sin somebody is committing is just fine. It's just covered by God's love. And then we go and we, and we say things like we, we, we grandstand about our sins, about what we used to do and the actions we used to take, or, or we treat sin as a common thing in our lives that God somehow looks past our sin and is, and is okay with it. No, if you understand this, you would, you would not gloat about your sin. You would think it was disgusting. You would hate it. You would hate the evil deeds of your heart and the intention of your mind. You wouldn't let an hour go past without repenting before God and saying, God, I'm in sin. Redeem me. Save me. You would produce love for God. You would produce love for God if you internalize this message. Oh, friend, you would have such a love for him. You would love him so much because his wrath did not come upon you. You say, I don't want a God that wants to deliver wrath. You didn't get it. You were saved. You were set free through Jesus Christ. His wrath and the punishment of your sin didn't come upon you. So you can be thankful for it. You can appreciate and love God for it. It will cause you to dance and worship. It will cause you to raise your hands. It will cause you to change the way in which you live your life. Because you're just so thankful for what he's done. Thankful, Jesus, that you died on the cross for our sins. That you took the place. See, what I've found is that people that lack love are usually the ones that lack any remorse over their sins. Because if you had remorse over your past deeds, it would produce a love inside of you. And people will say things about about my preaching and they'll say, oh man, you're so heavy handed in your preaching. But what's interesting about preaching like this, it produces love in your people. It produces love. You come to Faith and Victory Church, man, we got loving people. Because they understand what they've been saved from. They understand what they've been freed from. You hear people that never hear about the wrath of God. They're self-righteous. They're self-righteous because they think they were good enough for God to love. Oh, I was so awesome that God loved me. No, you were not awesome. And God still loved you. It'll produce love inside of you. It'll produce love for others. See, here's what happens. When you, when you truly begin to understand how wicked you are and how much God forgave you, you have forgiveness for others. You don't want revenge and retribution for them because you understand that you have escaped God's wrath through Jesus. You deserve death. You, you look at what happens in the news and you look at what happens in people's lives and you don't shake your righteous fist at them. You look at them and you say, you know what, man? On any other day, that could have been me. I could have been a murderer. I could have been a looter. I, I, I could have been a racist. I could have been all these other things if not for Jesus. So what right do I have to pass judgment on these other people? Gosh, if you would internalize this, it would give you a love for others. You would love people in spite of their sin. You say, you know what, friend? I, I have no right to think myself better than you. I don't think of myself more highly than I ought. I think of myself with sober judgment. You're producing you obedience. Now, if you've ever listened to the sermons that come through Faith and Victory Church, we preach obedience here. It's what we do. And, and, and some of my detractors will go so far as to say that I preach legalism at this church. I, 
read my lips. I do not preach legalism. Do you know what legalism is? Legalism is obedience that you think is going to save you. It's saying, you know what? Live this way and then you'll make heaven. Live this way and you're right before God. That is not what I preach or what we preach here. What I preach is, is that Christ has saved you and obedience is a response to forgiveness. You look at the fact that you've been saved. You look at the fact that God didn't require payment for your sin. And the least you can do is be obedient to his word. That's the least you can do. That's why I preach obedience, man. It's a response to heart and a a heart that understands their sin and a heart that understands God's wrath and a heart that understands Christ's forgiveness says, well, it's the least I can do to be obedient. I mean, you need me to serve. Okay, I'll serve. You need me to give. I'll give. You need me to forgive. Yes, I'll be. It's the least I can do. And, and typically the people that lack obedience in their lives and call it legalism, it's because they haven't appropriated the penal substitutionary atonement. They're still caught in their own ways, their own wants, their own desires, living their own life instead of realizing that I don't own my life anymore. I'm obedient because I'm thankful, not because I'm fearful. It produces a focus Friend, there is no message more important than this message. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's what Paul said. When I was with you, I I, I preached nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it gives you a focus in your life when in a world that wants to pull you in all these different directions. And the world's going to be the world. The world's going to do what the world's going to do. But I'm going to focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because if I understand this, I internalize this. It's going to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It produces brokenness over sin, new life, obedience, love and thankfulness. And this is why when you have no brokenness over your sin, no love for God, no love for people, no thankfulness, no obedience, I question whether or not you're saved. I question it. And if you have none of that in your life, I implore you, I beg you today, go to the cross. Go to the cross. If you've claimed Christ and you see none of that in your life, go back to the cross. Go back to the foot of that bloody cross. Cry out to Jesus and say, Lord, I thank you that you paid for my sins. I thank you that I didn't deserve the just punishment of my sins. Father, I thank you that you were the substitute. That you, with the heart of David over his son, you said if it had only been me. But you didn't just say it, Father. You lived it out. And you sent your son Jesus to pay the penalty for my sin. And now I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to give you my life and I'm going to live for you. If you've never made that decision before today, I encourage you to do it right now. Fall to your knees before God, wherever you are. I don't care if you're in your car. Get out of your car. Get on your knees next to your car. Use your seat as an altar. Cry out to God and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for the payment that you made for my sins, God. My reasonable response is to live for you. Father, we thank you for this word this morning, God. We thank you that it so deeply resonates in our hearts this morning. Father, that we deserve the penalty of that sin, Lord, but you came and you took it as a substitute. Father, we thank you that you came as a substitute, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you for paying for our sins. We're so thankful, Lord. Let us live a life that's pleasing to you.
We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I want to thank you again for watching this morning. Remind you that next week, drive-in service uh, and in-person service in the parking lot is going to be at 9 o'clock. Okay, so make, make, make sure that you do that at 9 o'clock. Also, we want to remind you that uh, online next week is going to be at 11 o'clock. It's at 11 o'clock. So if you've been watching online at 10 o'clock, remind yourself that it's going to be at 11 o'clock. All right. We love you so much. Have a great Sunday. Hey, we want to thank you so much for being online with us today. I want to remind you, if you're not a follower on Facebook, please like our page on YouTube. Please subscribe. Follow us on Twitter. Tell all your friends. Continue to watch online. We thank you for watching. We love you so much. Have a great day.